Michael Fred Phelps II. Um, you probably just know him by Michael, Michael Phelps. Um, he is widely considered to be the greatest swimmer of all time. Um, and not just that, but one of the greatest athletes of all time. With a total of 28 Olympic medals, uh, he has won more medals than 161 countries just by himself. Uh, in the summer 2012 Olympics, he won four gold and two silvers. Not his greatest showing, but still he became the all-time record holder for most Olympic medals. And yet, after achieving the, the pinnacle of um, athletic achievement, Phelps would soon announce that he was finished with swimming. He didn't want anything to do with the sport. And years later, he admitted publicly that he had struggled with depression and had contemplated suicide multiple times during this period. His whole life had been about pursuing swimming. Um, and to achieve that level of excellence, it takes everything. It's an all-encompassing desire that demands every aspect of your life. Like many others, he had dedicated his whole life to his craft. But unlike others who had labored but never quite arrived, Phelps had actually accomplished all that he sought to do. Never achieving your goal, constantly coming up short, that, that stinks. But what might be even more devastating is um, achieving all that you sought for and still feeling empty. I think stories like this are sobering because for so many of us, our lives in this season are more so about striving after goals than necessarily always accomplishing them. But suppose, that, uh, but suppose we accomplish our goals, what then? Will we be satisfied? I mean, these are some really big questions. What is a life worth living? If you had complete sovereignty over your life, what would you wanna do with it? Lord willing, when you're 60, 70, 80 years old and reflect on your long life, what we have done that, have made, that would have made your life worth living for. For many of you, I think your dream, your future might just be um, a nice, comfortable, stable, white collar job a bit later on, settle down, maybe buy a house, get married, have some kids. What about these ambitions make them worth pursuing? And our passage tonight, which Leighton's read for us, um, and, uh, offers answers to these kinds of questions. And our main idea, uh, which should be in your outline, is this, that to live a, fa a fulfilling, faithful Christian life, we need to pursue heavenly treasures and forsake our earthly treasures. And so with that, if, um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with them with me to Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Um, verse 19. Um, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of God. I'm gonna pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the ministry of your word, Lord. Um, and we thank you for the power of your word that it has the power to shape and transform our hearts, Lord, into the image of Christ. And Father, during this time, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to your word, to handle it diligently and with care. That I would um, speak your words and not my own, Lord. I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Um, sorry, very dry throat. Very nervous. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, for us as Christians, as believers of the gospel, one of the biggest questions that, is, that the Sermon on the Mount addresses is what does a God-honoring life of a disciple of Christ look like specifically? 
so far, Jesus has touched on a host of different topics ranging from specific sins like um, lust and anger. And in, starting in chapter six in particular, he begins targeting very specific behaviors and people who he calls hypocrites. You see, for some of the Jews, um, their faith had become more and more performant um, and about the glory of man. They had begun perverting and twisting Christian duties, like giving to the needy, uh, praying, fasting, things that were supposed to give glory to God, and they made it all about themselves. When they give to the needy, they make a big commotion about it. When they pray, they heap up long prayers so that they may be praised for their apparent holiness. When they fast, they make sure to look as ghastly as possible so that the whole world knows that they are fasting. And in these ways, they had forsaken heavenly and eternal glories for that of earthly glories, and so that, so that they will be praised by man. And so the passage that we'll be looking at today is very much a continuation of Jesus' critique of those who seek earthly treasures over heavenly ones. And we'll take this passage in four parts. Now, the first part is just defining what treasures are. Um, verse 19 to 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in he- treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now, Jesus uh, conveniently defines earthly and heavenly treasures in terms of the others. So as we continue to study what uh, earthly treasures are, we'll also develop a deeper understanding of heavenly treasures. So first off, what does Jesus mean when he says treasures? Well, money might be the first thing that comes to mind or maybe like a chest of gold or something. Um, and indeed, Jesus will dive deeper into money more specifically in verse 24. But more generally, treasures, treasures are just anything that we prize, anything that we deem precious. If your house is burning down right now, what thing or what things would you want to prioritize rescuing? Or since you guys may not have a lot of material possessions at this stage, if all your plans were scrapped, um, what things would you want to protect? What things would be of great loss to your heart? In the context of our passages, there were three categories of treasures that were deemed most important to the Jews. They were clothing, food, and valuables. And each of these three categories corresponds to the descriptions that Jesus mentions in verse 19 and 20 of of moth, rust, and thieves. So clothing and garments were considered a sign of wealth, and yet without modern uh, materials and manufacturing, clothes were fragile. It was inevitable that your clothes would slowly be eaten up by moths, all garments will eventually succumb to these moths. That word rust is an approximate translation of a word that um, literally just means to eat. And it can refer to the corrosion caused by rust, but also just to any devouring pest or vermin. Without a fridge or without modern day preservatives, food was especially prone to being spoiled, whether by bacteria or by uh, even larger creatures like rats or insects. And lastly, thieves threatened the gems. Without the presence of banks to safely deposit your money and valuables into, you had to handle all of the security yourself. But no hiding place or vault is impervious to thieves. And so Jesus' point here is that earthly treasures break. Even in our modern context, this truth holds true. Take, for example, houses, which have existed for, since mankind has existed. Uh, likely owning a house will be at the heart of many of our ambitions for our lives, as unaffordable as homes are nowadays. Uh, But owning a home is surprisingly quite a hassle because houses, like all things, break. And they don't fall by natural disaster and they will fall due to the unceasing wear and tear of regular life. Houses demand constant maintenance. Every few decades, you'll need to replace things like the roof, the water heater, the appliances. And even for us living in the modern age, thousands of years removed from Jesus, with the most advanced technologies mankind has ever known, nothing really lasts forever. You can throw as much money as you want at the problem, but time will surely eat away at everything. 
And so far, uh, the examples I've listed and, um, are mostly material things, things that you can um, literally touch. But his warning isn't just against materialism because earthly treasures extend to the immaterial as well. After all, treasures are simply what, are, what is important to you. Think of things like friendships, love, hope, comfort, ambitions, all of these things that you cannot touch and yet they can, they can still be earthly treasures because they can break. Maybe not physically or literally, but they'll break in the sense that they will disappoint you. That's just the reality of the things of this earth that they break. But in the face of that reality, there's a very tempting and reasonable desire to stockpile, to hoard, or what Jesus describes as laying up. If things break, well, you might as well have more of them just in case. For the Jews, they knew this. Um, they knew that their clothes are going to be ruined by moths, so that their food will be, will be spoiled, uh, that their uh, gems will be stolen. And so they figured, that's going to happen anyways. Might as well have more in case I need them. And for a modern parallel, you think of recessions like 2020 and COVID. Amidst the very physical and social threats of COVID and of quarantine, there was an enormous economic threat that everyone would just hoard up their money and be stingy with their spending, when, uh, which would devastate the economy when it needed more spending, not less. When our earthly treasures are threatened, we can be tempted to be stingy with our possessions. Even for US students, you might not be experiencing or be particularly concerned with economic recessions, but you do have midterm seasons in which your free time sort of experiences a recession. As those midterms roll around, you start shrinking back into yourself. You count every minute as you study and as you balance all the different responsibilities that you have in the name of protecting your grades. And to be clear, Jesus is not saying that we should never have any earthly possessions or that the faithful Christian life is one without possessions. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. He, is, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We need to live. And so it follows that we need a house and we need food. We need jobs. So we need to work hard and to do well in school. These possessions are not bad in themselves. And the faithful Christian life is not one where we make it our aim to live completely apart or independent of these things. But what Jesus is warning us about um, is consuming ourselves with laying up treasures here on earth so much that we forget that these things are just gonna break. If there's one thing that you can rely on the things of earth to do, it is to break, either physically or metaphorically. The temptation to hoard up treasures is a sinful way in which we cope and we try to convince ourselves that perhaps if we had just a little bit more money, if we had a little bit more clothes or food, we would have enough to last, to satisfy. Just a little more and perhaps the illusion that things don't break will be maintained. Well, if the earthly treasures we keep pursuing to break, uh, if, if the earthly treasures we keep pursuing continue to break, maybe the answer is just to stop pursuing these things and start pursuing something that will stand the test of eternity. And so we move on to our second subpoint, which is heavenly treasures. Verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. If the defining characteristic of an earthly treasure is that they break, the defining characteristic of a heavenly one is that they last. These two treasures are pitted against each other. They are opposites, completely antithetical to each other. What are these heavenly treasures? Well, elsewhere in the Bible, um, uh, the, the Bible speaks of, of future rewards that we speak from God for how we live in this life. But more, more simply, these heavenly treasures are things of eternal significance, things that last, things like godliness, evangelism, and increasing like Christ-likeness in ourselves or in others. In other words, heavenly treasures are about your character, either the, your own character or the character of others. The common thread over all these examples is that heavenly treasures are about hoarding up Christ's likeness either in ourselves or in others. 
While earthly things will crumble and fade with time, the quality of our character will not. To the ancient Egyptians, death was just the beginning of one's journey, and they believed that once they entered the afterlife, they would, they would uh, be able to take their earthly possessions with them. And so they, um, they made these great pyramids to serve as grand tombs for their most elite members who were buried with their most prized possessions to hold on to um, in the afterlife. The, rea the reality, though, is that none of our earthly possessions will follow us into the afterlife. When you enter heaven, there'll be nothing to accompany you aside from yourself. So if you want to invest in something that will last, invest in your character and invest in the character of others. All earthly possessions will dissolve, but our character will not. No burglar can steal it, no vermin gnaw it, no moth eat at it. No moths, no, nor mice, nor marauders can ever threaten it. You need not worry about insurance or keeping it safe, for heavenly treasures are indestructible. If you want to invest in, them, you want to invest in something that will last, something that will give you a return on investment with eternal implications, invest in your souls and invest in the souls of others. These activities are temporary. They start while we are on this earth, but they are the only things that we, we do that will ripple throughout eternity. Moving on to our second subpoint, treasures and the heart. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus reveals another aspect of the treasures that he is discussing here. That it's not about the possessions themselves, but it's about the heart. He's decoupling the idea that Owning something and treasuring it are two very different ideas. You can be dirt poor, and yet your life can be filled with absolute joy because of the heavenly treasures that you've laid up. You know who you are in Christ, and that supersedes being defined by anything in this world. And yet conversely, you can, be, you can possess all the riches in the world and be left unsatisfied, always craving for more. John D. Rockefeller, America's first billionaire, made an absolute fortune off of the oil industry. But when asked how much money was enough, he responded with this. Just a little more. In the history of mankind, you would be hard pressed to find someone as wealthy as Rockefeller. Yet here is a man who has all the earthly treasure one can possibly dream up, and yet he is met with discontentment. The battle of earthly and heavenly treasure is not one of possession, but of the desires of the heart. And because of that, it makes this battle all the more difficult. After all, after all, if the battle were right in front of us, if it were physical, we can use our physical eyes to see how we're doing or we can ask others. But alas, the battle is in the heart, which makes it more challenging because the heart is deceptive. You may think that you know yourself, you may think that you know your heart, but how do you know that the, that the way you see yourself is actually accurate? In high school, I remember taking the MBTI personality test for the first time. Um, and over the years, I would periodically revisit the tests. But for some reason, no matter how I answered, I never felt like I got an answer that satisfactor satisfactorily or holistically captured who I was. And I just chalked it up to the test being um, pseudoscience, which it kind of is. Um, and for a long time, I was very MBTI because I thought the whole thing was hogwash. Uh, until one day, I was talking to someone about the test, and I was just reading their personality. And lo and behold, I finally found some, a personality type that actually seemed to match me. The thing is, I don't think I had really changed that much uh, during that time. Sure, I had matured plenty, but, who I, but the, the fundamental problem was... Um, that my understanding of myself was just not an accurate reflection of who I truly was. And so I ask you this question, how well do you know yourself? Many of us may not know our hearts and our propensities as well as we think we do. We may consider ourselves kind, hardworking, an example of godliness, a servant to others, or in the language of this passage, one who lays up heavenly treasures, but is that actually true? Do our schedules reflect that? If a random person just took a gander at your calendar, is it obvious that you prioritize the things of heaven, 
Does your thought life, the thing that no one has um, complete insight into, demonstrate your faithfulness to Christ? One practical tip I would encourage all of you to do is just to involve those who know you. Ultimately, the battle is in the heart. So yes, none of your friends will have perfect insight into the struggles of your heart. But also remember that you yourself do not have perfect clarity into your heart. And so to completely dismiss the insights of others and solely rely on yourself would be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There's a lot of gray area in this. And when it comes to the heart, um, and a lot of discernment will just come with time and with, uh, as you grow in wisdom and maturity. Um, but I think it would do us much good to invite others into our lives to seek their wisdom and their thoughts, not in a way that incites or feeds our fear of man, but in a way that offers us greater clarity into our hearts. Their perspective on you in tandem with your, with your own will offer you a better, fuller picture of yourself. So that's the, that's the first point or the second point. Uh, uh, and those are just the objective symptoms. But of course, we want more than just the symptoms. After all, a doctor does more than just point out your symptoms. We want to be able to triage our symptoms and know possible treatments. And so we move on to our second point, which is the eye. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Um, Jesus here, he employs the illustration of an eye. And the thing about the eye is for such a small organ, um, and for some of us, it's a little bit smaller, the eye has an outsized effect on that <laughs> on the way that we experience life. Uh, it is arguably the most important organ that we have direct control over. Of course, you have organs like the heart and the brains and the lungs, which are critical to living. But for the most part, we don't um, direct, ha- exert direct control over them unless you are a person who breathes manually. Of our senses, it is by far the most important one. Losing your sense of taste or smell would be a bummer. Not being able to fully enjoy the taste and aroma of food would suck, but you'll, you'll move on. Um, at the very least, you have an easy question to the omnipresent um, question of, share a fun fact about yourself. Uh, losing your sense of hearing would be significant, significantly worse because so much of the world relies on hearing. You wouldn't be able to properly communicate. You would have to pick up sign language. Life would be more dangerous because you won't be able to hear things approaching you. Um, and of course, forget about listening to music. But still, there are workarounds. But none of these things compare to losing your eyesight because being blind is a life-altering experience. It shapes everything that you do. You would likely be disqualified from many jobs, or at the very least, most employers would be hesitant to hire you. Even the simplest tasks are rendered impossible without help. Take something as simple as going to the grocery store. To start with, how would you get there? You can't drive yourself, so you'd have to take an Uber or Lyft, which is really expensive, or take transit, but even taking transit safely would be a challenge. Once you're there, without someone by your side, how would you know what you're buying? How would you know which onions were worth buying, which bananas were ripe, etc.? Needless to say that if our eyes are not healthy, we will not live our lives rightly. Verse 23, if, our, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? To darkness. On the other hand, if we want to live life rightly, we need to start, make, we need to start with making sure that our eyes are healthy. Verse 22, if, our, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Whereas the first point dealt with the heart and identifying the true treasures, the eye is about how we see our treasures. Once we have a list of your treasures, of our treasures, we arrive at a second question. Should we be treasuring these things at all? What criteria do we use to even determine that? I think of Pastor Kim's illustration of the importance of a biblical worldview. Suppose um, a football game was on and your favorite teams were playing. Um, given our college context, let's say it's the UCLA versus the USC game. Uh, now suppose that UC, USC scores because, of course, uh, 
<laughs> you can imagine that the responses from the two sides would be pretty different. One side would be cheering and rejoicing, while the other would be dejected, heartbroken, because they rooted for the wrong team. Uh, the exact same events unfolded um, before both parties, and yet the responses are markedly different. And that's because of the difference in um, their worldviews. We all need a biblical worldview, one that matches up with what scripture says. As this pastor says, if the lens through which we see life is not healthy, if our eyes are filled with darkness rather than light, then the darkness will spread to the rest of the body. If our worldview is right, then we will live right. Why do we pursue treasures like career, stability, money? What criteria do, do you use to justify that it is something worth pursuing, something worth treasuring? Is it something that you can defend with scripture? Or are your defenses rather worldly, based more on your sense for what is good um, and right rather than what is in accordance with God's word? For many of us, it would be wise to consider all the ways in which we are far, far more influenced by the world than the other way around. In the age of the internet and social media, I think many of us should give thought to how our digital life might be slowly shaping our thoughts. We live in this world, which means we will be exposed to worldliness from all sides. But do we live like lights in the world that shine before others whose luminosity only grows with time? Or are, we a, or are we a tiny candle in the distance, barely visible, whose glimmer is on the verge of being snuffed out by the darkness? All these things may seem minor, but as we will find out in our last point, what we esteem as important will have palpable power over our lives. And so we move on to our last point, our treasures and our masters. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. To demonstrate the power of treasures, Jesus employs the illustration of a master and a servant. And Jesus doesn't just say that you're, just, you're gonna pursue what you treasure or that your treasures are gonna affect you. He says that they will master you, or if you flip it around, you will be enslaved by your treasures. In our modern context, it might be a little bit harder to understand the exclusivity of having only one master because it's not that uncommon to have multiple masters um, or bosses who oversee you. Uh, if you're working, you might have a direct manager and your direct manager will also have a manager above them, in which case you kind of have two masters. Or you can imagine someone who works multiple jobs um, who will also have multiple masters. But in the original context of this passage, having one master is an inherently exclusive thing. You can have multiple masters, but only once you, but only once you renounce your loyalty over the other. You can never have more than one master at one time because having two masters and trying to be faithful to both of them will tear you apart. Verse 24, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Two masters want different things. They expect different things and they want your absolute obedience. You can't be a good servant to both masters because if half the time you'll be gone serving the other master. In the same way, you can't truly be completely mastered by God if you're still tempted to be mastered by your treasures or by, especially by money. Um, a life lived for Christ is incompatible with a life lived for anything else. When the, Christ, when, when the Lord called you into salvation and justified you through the cross, he doesn't just ask for a part of your life or even most of it. He doesn't ask for a few hours on a Sunday, a few hours at your fellowship or a few minutes before you sleep, a few seconds before you eat. No, he demands all of it. As Christians, you don't get to pick and choose which part of your life you give up to God. Our entire lives are living sacrifices to God. We give it all up. Yes, money, but also our time, our relationships, and all, because God is our ultimate master. Not a single part of your life, your money, your friendships, your time should be untouched by your calling as a Christian. The faithful life of the Christian means the willingness to forsake all earthly treasures because the treasures found in heaven are more than enough to satisfy. If you've grown up, I'm going to church. Um, this passage is likely a familiar one. 
of course God is my only of course God is my only master. I think that's and I think that's the danger of a familiar passage like this. And, but Jesus is using some pretty strong language here. Do you really believe that you can only have one master and that one master ought to be God? Or is God a priority and maybe even a large priority, but in all honesty, you have other side hustles that occupy your life and occupy your mind far more than it should. A pertinent application of this might be the career that you've chosen. Consider this, that unless you decide to work on uh, in full-time ministry, there will be thousands, if not millions of other people chasing that same career path, many of whom will not be Christian. In other words, at a glance, with a very surface level viewing, there is little that will distinguish you from countless others seeking worldly treasures. And so what sets your pursuit apart from these people? How are you not mastered by your career or by money? What about your career seeking is marked by your faith? I think if some of us were honest, the career path that we picked is dictated more by earthly treasures like stability and comfort, work-life balance, money, more than any heavenly treasures. And again, your, your career would necessitate that you possess earthly treasures. Um, like a home or money, but our lives are meant to be lived out of who we are in Christ, and that includes your career. Does the career that you picked reflects, reflect a decision that is made in faith with a longing for heavenly treasures? Or are they more indicative of a person seeking earthly treasures? Will your career afford you opportunities to be a faithful church member, to be discipled by older believers, and to be a humble servant to those around you? Uh, around the time that I found out that I was going to be preaching this passage, it was also um, the time that I got laid off, and it's been over half a year since then, and even more so within the last few months, I can feel anxiety growing within me and it's just a burgeoning desire to just question God more and more. Uh, I'm trying so hard. I've shot out hundreds of applications. I'm doing all the right things I need to be doing for my career, and I'm doing all the right things beyond that for, for church and for ministry. What does it feel like I'm not making any progress towards getting a job? And by God's providence, he gave me this passage to wrestle with and what it means to, for myself to be seeking heavenly treasures. And it's been really convicting and sanctifying for my soul because it's revealed areas where I am mastered, not by God, but by security of money and, and career. And one of the tangible ways in which I've been personally tempted to be mastered by money is by seeing everything in dollars. Before I was laid off, seeing friends that live far away only cost me the time that I would spend driving. But without an income, it was hard not to see everything in dollars. I started factoring in the gas that it would take to see friends. The, uh, the, the same drive to see friends now not only costed me time, it also cost me money. Meeting up with people um, became a financial burden, and it almost felt like meetups were subscriptions that I had to pay to get to know people better. There were times I would question whether or not it was worth it for me to pay rent um, here in Torrance. Um, and it felt like uh, rent was this fee that I had to cough up to pay for the immediacy, the immediacy of the friendships um, here at church. Um, what it's revealed to me is that it's easy to say that um, um, you treasure heaven, you, uh, you're seeking after heavenly treasures when all the earthly treasures uh, that you could possibly want or need, you already have. Um, it's easy to be generous with your money when you have a steady stream of it flowing in, easy to be generous with your time when you have an infinite reservoir of it. But even when those reservoirs run low and the streams run dry, how can you be faithful in your generosity? Lord willing, when you land the job that you've been hustling after, I hope that you can be eagerly and cheerfully generous with your money. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says that God loves those who give out of joy, not out of compulsion. In our generosity, we image the generosity that God has shown us in the gospel. Also, I recognize that for college students, money is not the most applicable or relevant of topics um, compared to things like academics or career, dating, or serving. Um, 
yeah, you prob you may not have that many convictions on how to spend your money because respectfully, you likely don't have much of it. Uh, but I also hope that even in this season where you may not have the greatest incomes, that you can steward what little you have um, for other people. Generosity is not something that will just magically descend upon you. It's a muscle that you need to keep working at. And eventually it does get easier because the Lord changes your heart to want to be generous. Generous people don't come out of nowhere. They've been working on being generous for um, their entire lives. And for many of you, I think uh, I get that the source of your income uh, might also come from someone else. Um, and so it might be weird to uh, spend someone else's money um, to, be generous with, uh, to be generous with someone else. But that is always the active choice that you make in being generous. Whenever you treat someone or tie to the church, that's money you could have spent on yourself. You could have eaten another meal or a nicer meal, or that money could have gone towards your savings, towards a future house or wedding. Certainly right now, um, when you don't have much, you may feel the cost of being generous more. But generosity will always come with a cost. God's generosity to us in the gospel came with a, with a cost, which was Christ on the cross. Generosity is costly, and you will feel it now, but you will also feel it, feel it later on. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you'll feel it later on when you have a more stable income. How can you submit those desires under God? How can we as a church be proclaiming to a watching world that these worldly possessions that the Lord has given to us out of his kindness are great, but are meant to be used for the sake of others? That because we have all the heavenly rewards and treasures we could ever want or ask for, we are free to be generous with others. Um, finishing up, um, you guys may have heard, but a few months ago, around a dozen or so of us went to CrossCon, which is this um, missions conference, and the whole trip was awesome. The messages, the worship, the fellowship time with brothers and sisters. Um, and if we send another group next year, I would really recommend that you all go. But amidst all the things that were happening throughout that week, uh, we got the opportunity to hear from um, testimonies from um, fellow saints. Uh, but there was one testimony that really stood out to me, and it was from this couple. Now, this couple, they're probably like early, mid-30s. They've been married for a decent while. The husband worked as a pilot, and if you know anything about being a pilot, it's not exactly the most stable career, especially if you want to start a family. It requires being out of town a lot, and week to week, there's very little consistency. But after 15 years of grinding in the industry, the husband had reached a point in his career where he, had, he was afforded a lot of time with his family. The couple had really young kids, and they had just bought a house. By all worldly metrics, and even by most of our standards as Christians, they seemed to have it all. This was the life. And yet the Lord was tugging at their hearts, whispering missions, missions, missions into their ears. They had been affirmed by their local church that they would be a good fit for the missions field and were left with a decision. They felt the weightiness of the gospel, their hearts burdened by souls perishing without Christ. Do they obey the Lord's command to make disciples of all nations, forsaking everything that they had worked towards in the last decade and a half? Or should they just stick with what is known in an area that is familiar to them with a church that they have been faithful with for years and years? I mean, this story was shared at a missions conference, so to no one's surprise, they made the decision to go uh, on missions. Um, and at the time that they shared, they were just weeks away from, from flying out. So as we speak, they've likely been on the missions field for multiple months now. Uh, I bring up this story because um, I think what stands out to me the most is just how ordinary um, their lives are. It wasn't like they achieved anything that would earn them even a footnote in the history book. Uh, not only have they worked hard, they've worked hard for a really long time. They've been faithful church members for years and years, and I'm sure that their church was a place that they feel known and loved. They have each other, they have, each other, they have their kids. That is to say, I think um, their lives are one that many of us um, would envy, that many of us will 
um, hopefully you find ourselves in. And Lord willing, many of you will attain the jobs that you've labored years upon years after. Through the Lord's gracious provisions, you will attain everything that you've dreamt of. And yet time and time again, you'll be met at a crossroads. Yes, you will have all these earthly, earthly possessions, but will you make them your treasure? Will you allow these things to shape your heart, to shape your worldview, and to master you? Or will you be willing to forsake these or will you be willing to forsake these treasures, some that you have worked for years upon years for, and proclaim that all we have is Christ, and that our only boast is and will be Christ? Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross, Lord, that through the blood of Christ, you have redeemed us, you have made us new creations, that our sin has been washed clean. Father, we praise you that we have Christ, that our identity can be solely found in the blood of Christ, Lord. And I pray that for everyone here that that would ring true, that, they would be, that, that we would be people not marked by um, comfort, not marked by um, our seeking of earthly treasures, but a people who are marked by um, our pursuit of the things of eternity, Lord. Father, I, I pray, um, yeah, just for the rest of this night, Lord, as we move into small groups and, into, and even to the fellowship time after, um, that, um, that, our, that all that we do will be lived in light of who we are in Christ, Lord. Um, I pray these things in your son's name.